0: Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation to the fan. I'm Dave James. In a moment, I'll have information about an incentive program aimed at getting more people into the child care field. The Omicron variant of the coronavirus is in rapid decline in Ohio. In about 15 minutes, we'll have some comments about it from Ohio Department of Health Director Dr. Bruce Vanderhoff. Toward the bottom of the hour, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, Tracy Townsend looks at a number of topics, including a bill to prevent juveniles from being bound over to adult prisons, a study that indicates stimulus checks from the federal government during the pandemic may have helped fuel the opioid crisis, and information about a bill to crack down on distracted driving. And in about 45 minutes, I'll talk with the Executive Director of Ohioans to Stop Executions. First up on Columbus Perspective, on the phone with me, Eric Karolak, who is the CEO of Action for Children here in Columbus. How are you? I'm well, Dave. Thanks for talking to us. What is Action for Children?
1: Action for Children is the child care resource and referral agency for Central Ohio. We serve parents, early childhood educators, and child care programs in Columbus, Franklin County, and the six surrounding counties of Central Ohio reach about 9,000 adults uh, and 50,000 children through our programs every year.
0: Wow, and how long has it been around?
1: We're, we're heading into our 50th anniversary year. Wow. It's so just, just nearly 50.
0: And where does the funding come for the programs?
1: Well, we receive funding from a variety of sources, some government, both at the state and local level. We have uh, some federal work as well. And then a lot of support from the community, from foundations, uh, individual donors, um, it's a mix of funding sources.
0: Okay. And there's a, a program that's getting underway to incentivize more people to get into child care that's uh, pretty impressive.
1: Yeah, we're really eager to, uh, to share news about the launch of this program. It's a signing bonus program that is now available. Um, we're offering 500 individual $1,000 signing bonuses for eligible child care positions that are open in Franklin County. And that's made possible through funding from the city of Columbus and is now available to our child care programs and providers.
0: And this is something I'm guessing that maybe is always of concern, but has especially been of concern during the pandemic.
1: Yes. And it has has worsened. I don't think it'll come as a surprise to many of your listeners, uh, especially those with young children or uh, with uh, grandparents who, who have young kids in the family that it's been very difficult uh, in child care in the the time period of the pandemic. We know from our own data that um, well over half of child care programs are reporting staffing shortages. Um, almost two out of three programs is waitlisting children, so they're not able to take new children to serve families because they're short-staffed. Um, I spoke with a A child care provider just this morning, a five star center, highly regarded person who was really grappling, struggling because she cannot fill positions. She has two open classrooms and young children are missing opportunities because she does not have the staff to to serve them in those classrooms.
0: And it shows how complex everything is because I'm guessing that that staffing shortage is one of the reasons why there are staffing shortages in so many other positions as well.
1: Yes, this is the workforce the rest of the workforce depends on if you don't have childcare safe, reliable, uh, affordable child care, you can't go to work it's as simple as that yeah. if you have young children, you need childcare just as much as Everyone needs roads or schools to be able to go to work and to keep our businesses and society running. Uh, this is vital right now. And and of course, this right now, because enrollment is low, because there's, the staff is not available and their programs aren't able to enroll as many children, revenue is down. And so the childcare sector is really hurting. Um, in our most recent uh, report, significant numbers one in five most child care providers said they weren't sure they could hang on for another three months so we need to be able to help them turn the corner to be able to be more competitive and recruit in the labor market and that's what these signing bonuses are designed to do
0: talking with eric Karolak, he's the uh, ceo of action for children how many agencies are there in franklin county or in columbus to serve kids
1: yeah, in, in the central Ohio region, there are about 1,200, in, in Franklin County, about 800.
0: Has there been uh, a problem with some of them just permanently going out of business during this pandemic?
1: Yes. In, in, as I said, in, in Franklin County, there are about 800 child care providers. Some are child care centers, some are licensed family child care homes in our neighborhoods. And uh, since February of 2020, uh, the last pre-pandemic month, uh, Franklin County has lost... About one in six childcare programs in that time period. So this has been a very serious crisis for childcare, and as I said, you know, families and businesses, uh, their employees rely on childcare. It's really important that we 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 invest in this sector to. uh, to pave the path forward for our recovery and success down the road.
0: So, as you mentioned, 500 individuals will get $1,000 signing bonuses, and then there's uh, there's other incentives coming down the pike for families that get involved, right?
1: Right. Our local government here in Franklin County is really coming together. The city and the county are working close to develop a set of solutions that will help uh, childcare programs and the families that and businesses that rely on them. The next thing that's ahead is a child care affordability scholarship that will be coming out in a few weeks. So we'll have another opportunity to chat about that. But the first thing we have out are these 500 signing bonuses to help staff up those child care programs uh, to attract folks folks back into child care and to bring them into child care if they've not worked in this field before.
0: And an agency can offer these uh, more than one uh, to get more than one employee, right?
1: Right. Um, Our data shows that about 90% of the open positions are in programs that have six or fewer openings. And so we are allowing, offering the signing bonuses, uh, up to six of these signing bonuses per licensed provider. And um, what will actually occur, of course, is what the provider needs in terms of their staffing. So if they have only one or two open positions, that uh, we can offer up to six per per
0: program. And how do these agencies, these child care providers, uh, find out more about this? And how do they go about doing it?
1: Well, the easiest way to do that is to visit the Action for Children website, which is actionforchildren.org. All words, nothing terribly exciting about that, and uh, you'll be able to see from there um, the information about the program and and also how to, to go about applying. We hope that your listeners who are interested in working in early childhood education um, will visit that also. We'll look to child care programs and uh, and encourage them to, to visit that site as well. Again, it's actionforchildren.org and there's a signing bonus program link.
0: How long is this available and uh, do you expect all 500 of them to be uh, taken advantage of?
1: program is open until the funding runs out and we are very confident um, that these the scholar these signing bonuses will be fully utilized. Um, about a year ago, when the pandemic was reaching its first anniversary, uh, our team uh, looked at data from the childcare sector, and we estimated that a uh, nearly a thousand positions were open throughout our region now. And so, um, we think that there's uh, plenty of opportunity to use these scholar these signing bonus bonuses to uh, attract, to help providers attract uh, workers to uh, child care and to help staff those classrooms and family child care homes.
0: Eric Karolak, he's the CEO of Action for Children. Any other aspects of your agency and what's going on as the pandemic uh, hopefully begins to fade away, although we've kind of been here before, so we don't know. Uh, anything else going on you want to talk about?
1: Well, you know, I, 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 I hear you. This There's a certain amount of pandemic fatigue uh, right we are all uh, we've been at this now uh, finishing up almost two years um, one thing that has really struck me is that uh, this is a complex issue and a complex series of events that are uh, affecting our community in a host of ways and um, in the case of child care you know what happens to a child care program affects parents and families and vice versa and and employers get caught up in that as well there's a uh an ecosystem among those three that is critical so when the child care program can't staff and can't enroll children it can't bring in the revenue it's it's that much harder for it to stay open and be available for uh working parents and if working parents don't have access to that vital support uh, they're not going to be able to be as successful in the job market we're seeing crazy experiences on in the labor force participation rates of men and women that are absolutely affected by women's uh, disproportionate access to uh, uh, expectations around child rearing and and their access to child care and if families aren't able to get that child care they're not able to go to work businesses have fewer workers to rely on and right now with the labor market the way it is the last thing are local economy needs is another barrier to employment and growth so the interconnectedness of what a provider experiences and what a family experiences and what an employer experiences is just can't be overlooked this is the first of a set of steps to try and address that in in this moment of crisis and um, again we're, we're very eager to make sure that those 500 individuals are able to step forward and a benefit from the $1,000 signing bonuses.
0: You know, it's funny, I hadn't really thought about it before, but the pandemic and, and virtual learning and uh, meetings uh, by Zoom and all that, you know, the business traveling is way down because it just isn't as necessary as it was before. And yet, childcare is the one, seems to be the one area where down to the bones of it is, is something that you, you just can't do virtually with a child.
1: Right, especially for very young children. And so for parents of uh, infants and toddlers, young children, uh, three-year-olds, if if you don't have access to childcare, you're, you know, in a, this is the United States, we also don't have much in the way of paid family leave, especially for occupations where most people are concentrated. If you don't have access to reliable, affordable childcare, you, you are at a major disadvantage in the workforce. Um, we, that's part of the reason we see that women's participation in the workforce is lagging men's now by one of the largest gaps that's ever been. I think it's 12% of the last um, uh, monthly data showed that uh, they're participating at 12% less than men were in the workforce. And, and it's a function of the challenges that childcare is, is facing right now.
0: Is this something that the, the profession is in need of uh, an increase in pay, but of course that might have to fall back on parents who might have trouble making ends meet to afford that to begin with?
1: Yeah, it's a, there's a vicious circle here, right, where the challenges of a provider to be able to line up the staffing and the space and the materials necessary to provide a high-quality, effective, and safe experience for young children um, – it puts pressure on the tuition, the prices that parents face when they go to look for childcare and, and also affects what's available in terms of its uh, nearness, its accessibility to where you are, as, uh, where you live and work. Uh, we know from our data that since July of last year, uh, almost four out of 10 childcare programs have had to increase their tuition, the prices they're charging, uh, just to keep their doors open. And, um, and so this is a, a real challenge for families, for childcare programs, and of course for all of the rest of us who are relying on them.
0: And unfortunately, this, I guess, becomes a political football, just like health care funding.
1: Well, you know, there is a broad bipartisan support for child care and early learning. Despite that support, it has been hard to get the two sides uh, to come together on specific proposals. Uh, but there is some relief funding. Uh, our local governments are looking to direct that into childcare, and that's a positive. The state has some uh, relief funding that came through the American Rescue Plan Act, and we all have our eyes uh, set on the Build Back Better program that Congress is considering. That would be a real game changer. It would it would provide every family with a guarantee for childcare to keep cap the cost of childcare that they would face no matter who you are, what your job is, and where you live. And that would be an enormous benefit for all families, all children, all employers to uh, have access to a program like that. In the meantime, we're doing the best we can with what we've got, which is uh, resources beginning now for the signing bonuses, some additional resources for uh, uh, the scholarships that are coming, and, and of course the grants that are going to providers through the state.
0: Well, these staffing shortages that are happening across the board, you know, I mean, just just in the last week, we've done stories about the shortages for snowplow drivers, even volunteer firefighters. I mean, it's just running the gamut these days. And I think child care plays a huge role in that.
1: It, it, It does. And it's part of the reason that local government has identified this as a crucial area to invest in, is that all of those other occupations rely on child care for a chunk of their workforce to be able to show up. And so helping remove, address the child care barrier for employees is a, a vital step for making sure everybody has as a good a chance as to participate in the workforce and to and to be there for employers as possible.
0: Talking with Eric Karolak, he's the CEO of Action for Children. Uh, Eric, as we wrap up, can you again mention this incentive program, who it's for, and how folks can find out more info?
1: Yeah. uh, The incentive program offers uh, 500 individual $1,000 signing bonuses for eligible, open child care positions in Franklin County. So if you're interested in coming back to child care or exploring this work, this is the time to do it. The bonuses are available to eligible professionals who apply Uh, for and secure positions through participating child care programs. And those child care programs can apply for this funding through Action for Children at our website, actionforchildren.org. I think uh, an important thing to emphasize with this program is that this work is really vital work. It's necessary for young children, the workforce of the future. It's necessary for the workforce of today to help parents be able to participate in the workforce uh, and so it's just vital. This is work that is not babysitting. It's brain building. It's critical work that takes skill and deserves our respect, our recognition, our reward. And that's what those signing bonuses are attempting to do, to help childcare programs be able to compete in the labor market a little better uh, than they currently are.
0: Eric Karolok, CEO, Action for Children. Thanks so much for your time today. Good luck with this. You're welcome, and thank you. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. On Thursday of this week, Dr. Bruce Vanderhoff, director of the Ohio Department of Health, held his weekly press conference about the coronavirus. He had some good news this past Thursday to pass along. We're just presenting about three minutes of that news conference. Here's Dr. Vanderhoff.
2: Two weeks ago, I shared the good news that COVID-19 cases and hospitalizations in Ohio had dropped significantly. And today, I'm happy to say that those downward trends have continued. In the heart of the Omicron surge in January, Ohio at times experienced more than 20,000 new cases a day. And our rate of statewide cases per capita reached more than 2200 cases per hundred thousand residents today those numbers have fallen dramatically over the last few weeks we're averaging around 2800 cases a day and we've recently had several days with less than 1000 cases overall our statewide rate now stands at 174 cases per 100,000 residents. That's more than a 90% drop from Omicron's peak. And where once there were more than 6,700 Ohioans hospitalized with COVID-19, as of yesterday, there were 1,345, the lowest level of hospitalizations we've seen since August. Last week, Cuyahoga County, which was once an epicenter of the Omicron surge, became the first county to fall below 100 cases per 100,000. And that's significant, as the 100 case mark is what the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention considers high community transmission. Since then, eight more northern Ohio counties have fallen below that mark. Geauga, Holmes, Lake, Lorraine, Ottawa, Sandusky, Stark, and Summit. As you recall, Northern Ohio was the first and hardest hit area during the Omicron surge, right on the heels of the Delta wave. This is all wonderful news, and it's a welcome relief for us. It may be especially meaningful for those in our hospitals who've been working so hard now for nearly two years. Let's keep in mind, however, that while we are steadily headed in the right direction, Omicron is not quite done threatening us yet. The fact is that COVID-19 is still a real presence in Ohio. And as much as we look forward to declaring that we're in the all clear, the data still point toward caution and tell us we're not quite there yet. As we move forward, then, it will be vitally important that people make informed decisions when it comes to prevention and mitigation especially considering the COVID-19 rates in their community, since those rates currently vary substantially from community to community.
3: please visit our website
0: at 971thefan.com, and thanks for listening. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, here's Tracy Townsend. From her Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV.
4: President Biden made a quick stop to the Buckeye State. What he had to say about a $1 billion investment in the Great Lakes. And did stimulus checks equal more opioid deaths? We take a closer look at a study by the Ohio AG's office linking those two situations. Thank you so much for joining us for Face the State this morning. I'm Tracy Townsend. The redistricting fight continues with lawmakers third attempt at creating new voting maps. The Ohio Supreme Court previously rejected two different sets of legislative maps because of partisan gerrymandering. Now there are talks of the state having two primaries. A spokesperson for the Franklin County Board of Elections says that could put voters and candidates in a tough spot. We
0: actually had
1: The back and forth between sure. the commission and then the Supreme Court, uh, you know, I think they're in round three. Um, you know, it can't go on forever. Uh, we, we don't know when the end date is, but uh, it, it just, it, it can't, it can't go on forever. So, uh, you know, we are certainly very hopeful Uh, that they can get this thing uh, buttoned up and um, approved uh, you know as soon as possible uh, so that we could potentially uh, you know have a primary one primary in you know june july or potentially august Um, you know it takes about four weeks to uh, to get the ballot ready
4: We will keep checking in with the Franklin County Board of Elections on the status of the main primary. And of course, we will let you know if any dates change. President Joe Biden stopped in. Lorraine, he touted major infrastructure funding.
1: We're announcing
0: an investment of $1 billion, $1 billion from the bipartisan infrastructure
4: bill. The funding will be used to clean and restore environmentally degraded sites around the Great Lakes, which is a major source of drinking water in the region. The funding bolsters an effort known as the Great Lakes Restoration Initiative that was launched back in 2010. This week's trip was the latest by the president to highlight the benefits of his $1.2 trillion infrastructure law.
5: We're declaring gun violence a public health crisis. We will not wait
4: for others to Act. Columbus Mayor Andrew Ginther announced a new plan to fight back against gun violence. City leaders announced the formation of the Columbus Alliance Against Illegal Guns. Their mission is to demand what the mayor describes as common sense gun reform from the statehouse and Congress. The group will also form new initiatives to prevent gun violence like the group violence intervention that will launch in March. The alliance is made up of people in the community, faith leaders, city leaders, and medical professionals along with Representative Dontavius Gerald's. To
6: hear the stories of families who simply want action, who may not be able to embrace their loved one again, but they are using their voice to ensure that someone else can. That's the multi-system approach we need to truly solve gun violence in this state. And in this city, and I stand with our our pastors, our city council, our Senate with Senator Herschel Craig, the mayor's office, and every agency and entity and organization in between to ensure that we are building an Ohio that truly is saving lives. The Ohio
4: House passed a bill that would allow police officers injured during a riot to be able to sue people or organizations that provided help to the rioters. Help could be things like providing lodging or transportation. That legislation also increases penalties for rioting and creates new charges for it. The American Civil Li- Liberties Union calls the bill an extreme attack on free speech. The bill now heads to the Senate. When a child commits a crime, what goes into the decision of whether they are punished as a juvenile or an adult? An Ohio lawmaker is asking to rethink how we punish our state's youth by rethinking what's known as bindover laws. As 10TV's Kevin Landers explains, one family believes if judges had more discretion, it may have saved their loved one's life. The
3: woman that's about to enter your screen is going to show you
4: a picture. This is his
3: obituary. That's her brother, Matthew. He was convicted at 16 years old of aggravated robbery.
4: They sentenced him to the four years. And when he turned 18, they have a bind over law in place for um, for juveniles who commit felons. Natalie Aleem says
3: when her brother went to prison, his life changed for the worse.
4: He was fighting a lot from, in juvenile, he wasn't getting into as much trouble as he was when he went to prison. There he had to basically fight for his life. That's where he joined a gang for protection. Because there, they just take advantage of young men. In Ohio,
3: judges don't have the discretion to determine if a child should remain in juvenile detention or prison. It's what's called mandatory bindovers. This lawmaker wants to change
2: that. If that judge determines that a child is better served in the juvenile system, our bill simply gives them the discretion to put them there.
3: Representative Stewart says on a recent tour of Orient Prison, he was stunned at how many children were inside. He says it's time Ohio changes how judges determine which children are better suited for adult prison.
2: As of today, we have a one-size-fits-all policy for the state, which takes away judges' discretion
3: Representative Stewart says his research found that children sent to adult prison are 34 percent more likely to reoffend, are five times more likely to be sexually assaulted, and because children are isolated in adult prison, they are 36 times more likely to die by suicide. I think when we're faced with
2: statistics of that kind, uh, we have to look and say we can do better as a state.
3: In the case of Natalie's brother, he did his time, left prison and started working. Less than two years after his release, she said, he was murdered. Shot to death, she says, by gang members he met in prison who he no longer wanted to have contact with. And he didn't
4: want that lifestyle.
3: She believes if Ohio changed its juvenile bindover law, it could have saved her brother's life.
4: I think he would still be here right
3: now. Kevin Landers, 10TV News.
4: We're told this bill does have bipartisan support. The former Ohio Department of Job and Family Services director has stepped down from her new post in North Carolina. Kimberly Henderson was just named the head of racial equity initiatives for the mayor of Charlotte. But after two weeks on the job, she's out following a report about the audit that identified $3.8 billion worth of unemployment fraud and overpayments during the pandemic. Henderson released a statement on her resignation. It reads in part, quote, the work of the initiative is too critical to be jeopardized in any way by public public misperceptions related to my prior leadership as a cabinet director for Ohio Governor Mike DeWine. Henderson has not been criminally charged for the fraud and overpayments. She stepped down from ODJFS last March. The Ohio AG's office is releasing the results of a new study. It showed a possible link between federal stimulus checks and a record increase in opioid deaths. 10TV's Brittany Bailey looked into the study and talked with Dave Yost. The
7: study set out to answer this question. Did federal stimulus payments lead to more people dying of drug overdoses? It is a peer-reviewed study set to be published this April. We asked Dave Yost about what prompted the study and what he thought about the results. So you think there was a causal connection in the study? The
2: study found that there was a causal connection between the stimulus checks in 2020 and the uh, overdose death spike that we saw uh, that spring as well. And the Now, it wasn't the only thing. Um, the, the paper notes that it was kind of a perfect storm. You have social isolation and the lockdown and, you know, the mental health issues that were surrounding um, the fear of the pandemic.
7: And he's right. The study did show there was a significant increase in the number of opioid overdose deaths during the same time the stimulus payments went out in 2020. But the conclusion of the study notes the identified change point may refer to the timing of many factors, not only the economic payments, and further research is warned to investigate the potential relationship between the COVID-19 economic impact payments and overdose deaths. So the bottom line here is this study did find that the timing of the stimulus payments did overlap with an increase in opioid deaths. The authors, though, say the results warrant further investigation into the potential link between the payments and those overdose deaths. Brittany Bailey, 10TV News.
4: And we should be clear here that Dave Yost did point to other factors that contributed to this. And he says he feels the study should be used to inform public officials in the future when deciding how and when to offer payments. We have a warning for parents. Chances are if your kids need mental health help, you won't be able to get it. We're going to walk you through the reason for that struggle.
8: We don't want you on our team. You're too slow and fat
2: this is weight bias I'm worried about your weight
9: don't you care what other people think
2: millions who live and are affected by obesity face
8: weight bias every day
5: you're not the right fit for this job
8: unfair judgment by others just stop eating so much and exercise some you lose all this weight these people often blame themselves it's
9: just me nobody likes me
5: I do exercise and eat right. And I talk to my doctor.
9: Weight bias hurts.
8: Everyone deserves to be treated with dignity and respect.
9: Your words and
4: actions matter. Let's stop weight bias. Let's work together. Be part of the solution. Go to stopweightbias.com and learn more. A public service message from Obesity Action Coalition.
0: This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV.
4: The National Suicide Hotline number will change this year. An Ohio lawmaker behind the bill explains how. Any mental health uh, uh, crisis that someone might be going through uh, will be uh, channeled, uh, you know, when they call 988, will be part of a uh, of a system where they will be able to get the help that they need and be able to talk to someone immediately. Right now, the National Suicide Prevention Hotline is 1-800-273-8255. It will not change to 988 until July. Children's Mental Health professionals across Ohio, and the country say the profession is at a breaking point. Over the past three years, Ohio has dedicated $1.2 billion for student wellness. The number of children seeking help for depression, anxiety, suicide is overwhelming the system. Reporter Kevin Landers looks at why parents are struggling to find help.
8: She's very loving and outgoing.
4: This is a story about an adopted girl from Russia.
3: Her mother, Lisa Danino, says at the age of three, she noticed her daughter needed help. Danino took this video as her daughter became uncontrollable. She's sharing it because this is what a lot of parents and children are dealing with.
8: And then around three, she started displaying really unique behaviors that were not typical. They weren't the terrible twos or... Anything that any other mom I spoke to was familiar with.
3: Danino says she desperately tried to find help for her daughter.
8: Nobody wanted to work with a toddler. And insurance wasn't going to cover it anyway. And nobody believed me until they saw the video.
3: She says it took three years on a waiting list to find a therapist to work with her daughter. The waiting, she says, just made her child worse.
8: It gets progressively worse because as she's supposed to be maturing and fitting into societal norms, that child is not doing that. So there's more and more disappointments every day.
3: Kristen Centel runs one of the few child therapy offices in the city. So even if you were to double your staff, could you still meet the demand? No,
7: we could not meet the demand if we tripled our staff right now.
3: 76% of the counties in Ohio are what's called mental health HPSAs or health professional shortage areas. These are areas seen in red where there is a shortage of health professionals.
2: It's truly at a breaking point in terms of the sheer numbers of people who cannot
3: get access to care. Are- Jared Skillings is with the American Psychological Association. The wait lists for mental health conditions across the whole country are absolutely out of control. Danino agrees. She says it wasn't until she had to call police because she couldn't control her daughter that she says she was able to move up the waiting list at Nationwide right. Children's Hospital. So what does that tell you?
8: I mean, was my child honestly going to almost have a police record before any therapist would talk to her? (laughs) That's insane. Prior to the opening
3: of Nationwide Children's Hospital Big Lots Behavioral Health Pavilion, it had 28 beds. Since then, it's gone from 44 to 56 beds. And the hospital says it could add more. So why isn't it? The director says he doesn't have enough
1: workers. If we had more staff, we would open more beds.
3: Dr. David Axelson is the chief of the Department of Psychiatry and Medical Director of the Big Lots Behavioral Health Pavilion at Nationwide Children's Hospital.
1: So some of our programs, you know, the waits are several months, some of them not as long.
3: Even children who express suicidal thoughts must wait.
1: So Some of these prioritized kids will get in within three or four days. The
3: hospital says patients who express emergency suicidal ideation have immediate resources available to them, including the Franklin County Youth Crisis Line, which is available around the clock. Dr. Axelson says since the pandemic, more kids are hurting.
6: Depression and anxiety, at least, has increased significantly in our kids.
3: But without more people to care for them, he says, he's worried about what will happen. He says Ohio lacks
1: child psychiatrists. Yeah, we're probably about four times lower than what we truly need.
8: We move this guy over here.
3: Inside this private practice in Columbus, which specializes in child therapy, therapists say wait times are longer than they've ever been.
8: If someone were to email me today, it would probably be about a year before I could see their kid.
3: Before the pandemic, they say wait times were a few months.
7: We get requests for services seven to ten times a day for new clients that we just can't support.
3: Turning parents away, they say, has always been an issue. Now it happens more often because of the demand. What is it like for you to tell a parent no?
8: Heartbreaking.
3: Danielle Weatherholt is one of the few people in Columbus that works with children as young as three years old. Like many professionals, she thought Children's Hospital Behavioral Center would help absorb more kids in need. So it didn't provide the relief that you had hoped
1: it would provide?
8: No, no, and not for families either. And I hear that from families all the time. But they just saw this new building. We just heard they increased all these services. I called them, and it said, you know, six months to a year.
3: As for Lisa Donino, she says she feels lucky she found a therapist that's helping her daughter. She just wishes there were more of them.
8: Basically, they are saints on earth. (laughs) We just don't have that many saints.
4: That was 10 TV's Kevin Landers reporting. The problem doesn't stop there. Those who work in child therapy say insurance companies like Medicare haven't raised their reimbursement levels to keep up with inflation. So some therapists are no longer accepting insurance. So parents now have to pay out of pocket. If you think your child needs help, Here are some red flags, a change in interest or isolating themselves, a change in sleep or appetite, a sudden change in friends or feeling a sense of hopelessness or thoughts of suicide. Nationwide Children's Hospital also has a list of podcasts to help teach parents how to deal with this difficult topic. And we have a link to those and many more at our website, and that's 10TV.com. There's a push to make distracted driving a primary offense in Ohio. And this comes as the Maria Tiberi Foundation announces a new initiative to teach young drivers the importance of paying attention. Dom is going to have that announcement after the break.
7: Ladies and gentlemen, we have arrived in Philadelphia. Local time is 3.05 p.m. and the temperature is 67 degrees. At this time, you are now free to use your cellular devices.
9: You know that feeling when you get to turn your phone on after the plane lands? You can have that feeling every time you drive. Make sure your cell phone is stowed away whenever you are behind the wheel.
1: Visit StopTextStopRex.org. A message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, and the Ad Council.
0: This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV.
4: One Ohio lawmaker is trying to steer the state in a different direction. State Senator Michael Rulli announced his bill to make Ohio the next leader in electric vehicle manufacturing. The senator says this isn't just for consumers. We want to encourage growth
5: in Ohio EVs with incentives, not only for regular consumers, but for People that are buying fleet vehicles. We want to capture the fleet market,
4: whether it's just if you're UPS and you want to redo your your vehicles or whether maybe it's something like First Energy. No word just yet on how fast the Ohio lawmakers will move to get that piece of legislation through keep you posted. Right now, Ohio lawmakers are also talking about a bill to make distracted driving a primary offense. Under House Bill 283, holding a cell phone while driving would be illegal. This comes as 10TV's Dom Tiberi makes a special announcement to help raise awareness about distracted driving hi guys and welcome
5: to the maria taberi foundation simulator lab here at the tolls career and technical center it's the first of its kind in the united states and you know we love this because all the kids here that go to tolls will be required to take it it's a 16 different lesson plans on here takes them about six and a half hours to go through it and uh, it's going to make them better drivers we know it Todd Hoadley is the superintendent and Todd I don't have to tell you it's the leading killer car crashes are of kids age 8 to 24 and what we're doing here is we're trying to save lives Absolutely. And not just the lives of our students here, uh, but
1: also the impairing or preventing the impact on their families. There's nothing worse, Dom, uh, as you know, just the experience of losing a loved one. And as you mentioned, uh, uh, these students are in that age bracket where uh, death by car accident is a leading cause. And so we want to do anything that we can to prevent those things from happening.
5: Well, we appreciate everything you've done. Let's come over here. Some of these students here, this young lady said she would talk to us. Tell everyone your name.
4: My name is Jocelyn Krantz.
5: What do you think of this? What are you learning? It's six and a half hours. You're going to have to do it to graduate from here.
9: I think it's a really good experience to learn how to drive ahead if you haven't got your drive-ins. It's good for practice, and it teaches you everything you need to know as well.
5: You know, we're all about uh, saving lives, and, you know, moms and dads, they worry about You do understand your parents worry sick about you behind the wheel, right? Yes, I do. Well, yeah. appreciate everything you're doing. You keep going. Now, we do have exciting news, and I wish we had a drum roll. This is the first of its kind in the United States, this school here, and we can't thank tolls enough for being the first, but we're going to duplicate this. And within the next few months, we're going to be opening a new one. It's going to be located at the Eastland Career Center in Groveport. And we are just pumped as heck that we're going to be able to do this. And, you know, this is not a job, this is a labor of love. It is a mission for my wife, Terry, and I. As I said, as parents and grandparents, we should be screaming from the mountaintop that the leading killer of our kids is car crashes. We can't wait till this COVID is out of here because we're going to open this up here. We're going to open it up at Eastland. And uh, once again, the big announcement, we're going to duplicate this. We're going to put a new one in at the Eastland Career Center in Groveport. We'll have two of them, first of their
4: kind, and we want to keep going from there. All right. And you can learn more about Dom's mission to teach young drivers. Go to tentv.com slash Maria's message. Cardiovascular disease is the number one killer of women and does not take into account whether they vote Democratic or Republican. The message for women, no matter how they vote, is to listen to your body. The American Heart Association held its annual Columbus Go Red for Women luncheon. This year's co-chairs, Ola Snow from Cardinal Health and 3rd District Congresswoman Joyce Beatty, who is a stroke survivor. Her message is that while so many women are in isolation, they're working from home or maybe in a hybrid situation, she says it's key for women to check on one another and to take your own health very seriously. I can't stress enough for people to listen to their body. We all know when we've had that extra cup of coffee because we were tired. Or we all know when we'll say, just, just one more thing, just one more task to get done. Then I'm going to say to you, when you get to that point, Say, let me set aside that task for now and do it hours later or the next day. It is so critical that we pay attention to what our body is telling us. Eat right, rest, have fun and enjoy yourself. But most importantly, know that it's up to us to take care of us. And you can get started on this journey or get inspired with some new ideas at the American Heart Association's website, whether you're looking to mellow out or reduce stress or to get up and move to the groove at www.heart. Org. Finally, this week on Face the State, President's Day February 21st. Our state, Ohio, is sometimes referred to as the mother of presidents, according to the Statehouse Museum Education Center. Seven U.S. presidents were born in Ohio. They are Ulysses S. Grant, Rutherford Hayes, James Abram Garfield, Benjamin Harrison, William McKinley, William Howard Taft, Warren Harding. There's also William Henry Harrison, who was born in Virginia but then settled in Ohio and claimed Ohio as president. We thank you for being here and we hope you will learn more about the presidents who claim our state as their own. Have a great week
0: that 's again Tracy Townsend, courtesy of our sister station WBNS Ten TV from their Sunday morning public affairs program Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at eleven thirty on Ten TV. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and joining me on the phone is Hannah Cubbins, who is the executive director of Ohioans to Stop Executions. How are you?
9: I'm doing well. Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for talking to us. Tell us about Ohioans to Stop Executions, how long it's been around, and what you do.
9: Sure. Yeah, so we call it OSTE for short, O-T-S-E. Um, and OSTE was founded in the 1980s, right after, or a few years after, Ohio reinstated capital punishment statute. And so at the time when it was founded, since we had just brought back the punishment, it was really an organization that would hold space for vigils or protests or public education about the death penalty. Um, and as time went on, there were more and more political opportunities to get involved with legislation. So, for example, the Severe Mental Illness Exemption Bill that was signed into Governor DeWine, I believe a year ago now, lost track of time over the last few years, but um, it exempts individuals with four qualifying illnesses from receiving a death sentence. And so that was incredible progress that we made. But, you know, now we're we're having the conversations and going through the process of, of getting it, you know, actually repealed in the state of Ohio. So the organization has taken um, quite an evolution from its founding to, to now.
0: I was going to say it's gone through quite a period because for quite a while there we were, I think, Pretty much second to Texas in the number of executions for a few years, weren't yeah.
9: we? Yeah, we definitely earned our nickname as the Texas of the North for a while there, but uh, we have not executed anyone since July of 2018. So we're coming up on four years um, this coming July, and we've seen Governor Dewine, you know, just repeatedly and consistently issue these reprieves of, of death dates because, you know, in Ohio, there's no practical way to carry out executions right now. Um, And so not having that those going on has been a really incredible period of time for us to have the conversation with lawmakers to see that this is not a partisan issue anymore. It has significant bipartisan support in both chambers of our legislature. And we do believe that it's not if, but when Ohio will, will repeal its death penalty.
0: There's been a shortage of drugs because the pharmaceutical companies make those drugs for things other than executions, and they want no part of it. I guess that's part of the reason, right?
9: Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. So um, there's no no pharmaceutical company, even with the promise of anonymity, has been willing to come forward and provide those drugs. Correct.
0: And it sounds like in some of the comments that the governor has made that that he would sign legislation to abolish the death penalty in Ohio if it came across his desk.
9: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I can't pretend to know his heart and his mind, but I do think that, you know, he's made some very thoughtful comments about, you know, is this really a, a system that's keeping communities safe? Um, and, you know, these continuous reprieve, I think, could indicate, you know, optimism for us when these bills go through the legislature
0: and make it to his desk. Absolutely. And other states have been doing it, right?
9: Yeah. So about half of the country has their criminal justice systems functioning just fine without the death penalty. Um, we have 23 states that have, that have repealed the death penalty, and we have three that have had, you know, uh, moratoriums issued. And of the states that still have it, only a third of them or a third of them, excuse me, have not used it in over a decade. So we've consistently seen the use of the death penalty declining across the nation. And it's really just starting to be concentrated in these in these southern states. Um, And Ohio is just part of this trend of conservative states like Utah, um, Wyoming, uh, Florida, even that are having the conversations about repeal. So uh, we're really optimistic about Ohio's chances of getting rid of this system. Like I said, it's, it's not if,
0: but when. And you mentioned the word conservative, and I wanted to bring that up uh, because uh, this is an interesting topic. The actual support of executions, is it a left or right issue, or does it go deeper or different mm-hmm. than that?
9: No. So that was a, it's a very common misconception, and it's, it's one that I held before I got into the work, that conservatives are, you know, tough on crime, pro-death penalty, and, and progressives are, are, are the opposite. But when you have the conversation with conservatives, particularly in Ohio, you know, Ohio is a pro-life and fiscally conservative state, right? And, and, and the death penalty doesn't align with either of those values. It, it, so what I've seen in these conversations is that the left, the right, everyone in between, libertarians, I, I don't know, Green Party members, like all of these people in these, from these different groups can look at this system and see it for what it is which is an irreparable system that wrongfully convicts people with, you know, alarming regularity. It traumatizes victim family members, and it costs taxpayers millions of dollars without actually keeping communities safer. So it's been really encouraging to work on an issue like this because we're so politically divided on just about everything as a state and as a nation, right? And this is the one issue that we've just seen everyone kind of gather around and say, hey, this is broken. Let's do something about it.
0: Yeah. It, you know, it seems like if you just take the, the very notion that a government would have the power to kill its own citizens for any reason just seems unbelievably mm-hmm. radical.
9: Yeah. You know, we're the only westernized democracy that still has the death penalty. Right. You know, every other nation has is, is abolished it. So we're kind of in the ranks with, with countries like China and, and Iran at this point. So that's, an, you know, that's an argument that has really resonated well with particularly more libertarian-leaning folks, you know, pro-limited government. And this is, you know, antithetical to that very principle of limited government, because I I see it, in my opinion, as like the biggest form of overreach, right, deciding who lives and dies.
0: Talking with Hannah Cubbins, she's the executive director of OTSI, Ohioans to Stop Executions. Are there any groups in Ohio or or a group of legislators who are passionate about keeping the death penalty? No, you
9: know, in most Campaigns um, in Ohio is not the exception. We we don't really see a lot of opposition. We you know the, the we see opposition from prosecutors or prosecuting attorneys associations, but it, there isn't a whole lot of support to, to keep this. Especially when when folks are presented with the option of life without the possibility of parole, because that's exactly what it means. It is life in prison without the possibility of parole. And so once they're presented with that option or, or other ways to You know, deter and prevent violent crime. The death penalty really wanes in popularity.
0: Yeah, jurors in uh, recent years have really uh, latched onto that much more than recommending the death penalty.
9: Absolutely, and you know, a lot of the times when we when we talk to people who are supportive of it, they say, "Well, we need it for the worst of the worst, for these high-profile cases." And they are absolutely correct. We're seeing juries more and more uh, recommend life without parole than a death sentence.
0: And one of the other problems with it is uh, if you get a particularly brutal murder, the worst of the worst type case, if that happens in a big city, in a big county that has the resources to go for an expensive trial to put somebody like that to death, that may not happen in a rural county where your chances of being sentenced like that would be lower, which just inherently seems unfair.
9: Well, yeah, and, you know, there's a reason the Supreme Court of the United States outlawed it in the 1970s, and they did this because it, they saw it as a violation of the Eighth Amendment, which is obviously, you know, cruel and unusual punishment, right? But they, they outlawed it on the basis of the unusual application. Uh, the death penalty is very arbitrary based on race and place, and exactly what you said. Some rural counties may see, you know, an identical, horrific crime, and, and I want to be clear, all, all murder and, and homicide is heinous, I I, for me, there is no worst of the worst because all murder is right. Um, but you'll see an identical crime in a rural county versus a more um, populated county, and you'll get death. And you're more likely to get death in the county that can afford it. And so, if we're talking about an equitable justice system, the death penalty isn't doing it, just with the, with that example. And there are you know dozens of other <laughs> reasons why it's inequitable as well.
0: And you've also got uh, you know just the <laughs> the fact that the county prosecutors who might score votes by putting somebody on death row is is an elected official
9: correct yeah so i always tell folks when they want to learn more about this issue and make a difference to really pay attention to your local prosecutor's races i don't think a lot of people know that it is an elected position right um but if you want to be part of you know meaningful criminal legal system reform that's definitely a race that people need to pay attention to
0: Talking with Hannah Cubbins, executive director of Ohioans to stop execution. Do you have any kind of a time frame or or even like a prediction of what might happen with executions in Ohio down the line?
9: You know, I think we have seen our last execution in Ohio. Um, I I do think that's what we're looking at right, right now. And as I've said, you know, two other times before, like a broken record, it's not if, but when. We have these two bipartisan bills that are making their way through their respective chambers right now. And the house bill is, is looking like it's really picked up some momentum um we're hoping to see some additional hearings happening i don't love to hypothesize about time frames especially with the legislature and you know all the other priorities they have going on with redistricting um and all the other priorities they may have so i do think that ohio will be a death penalty free state in the next you know three years at most uh, we've made a lot of progress in the last general assembly and. It's been really encouraging to see people move on this issue
0: and the governor keeps uh, executions that that are coming around for their schedule to be carried out he's delaying them again years down the road anyway so th- it's not likely to happen soon
9: yeah that's correct because you know i'm not an attorney but i there i haven't seen any any progress being made in terms of obtaining you know a way to actually carry out these executions so it's just a practical matter of we can't do it right now and I don't see that changing anytime soon, especially with, you know, more and more states opting for repeal.
0: What about people who say, uh, it's sort of the, you know, an eye for an eye sort of uh, belief in the justice system that, you know, if somebody has taken a life, then mm-hmm. why should they be allowed to live?
9: Yeah, and I think what we have to recognize there is that there's a difference between justice and vengeance. I, I don't think our system should operate on vengeance, right? And... You know, that's another argument we hear from, from folks who support the death penalty is, well, what about the, the people who are left behind, the, the murder victim family members, or, or co-victims, as we, as we call them? And OSPI works with a pretty large network of, of co-victims who are against the death penalty. But even if, if there's a co-victim who is in favor of the death penalty, both sides of the argument um, with people who have experienced that loss can agree that the process is over it's traumatizing it's trauma after trauma after trauma because of the decades worth of appeals that come with a capital case which you know they're entirely necessary because another major problem with the death penalty and with our legal system at large is wrongful conviction you know in ohio we've had 11 death row exonerees knowing that we have executed 56 people since the reinstatement You're having one exoneration for every five executions, so we can't really do anything about shortening that process and lessening the pain on co-victims, and we're left with that conundrum there. So, you know, when people come to me with that argument, I, you know, just go back to it's, it's about justice, not vengeance, and the death penalty isn't doing well by it. It's not helping anyone right now.
0: Do you think it's the exonerations and and maybe some of the television series, documentary type series that that follow these sorts of cases? Sometimes you'll see like an HBO documentary following uh, wrongfully convicted uh, inmates or, you know, things like this. It just seems like there's more information available these days than there would have been 20 years ago.
9: Yeah, so that's, that's correct. If we're, if we're talking about shows that specifically mention wrongful conviction conviction or movies, excuse me, absolutely. So Just Mercy, Bryan Stevenson's book, I don't know if you've read it, but it was turned into a film a few years ago. And, you know, the amount of people just in my family who hadn't thought about this issue saw that film and, and had the conversation with me. So I do think that media like that is a great way to start the conversation, especially because support for the death penalty is really a mile wide and an inch deep. I think a lot of folks can support it in theory, but in practice, it just does not work. And wrongful conviction is, you know, an argument enough to show that it doesn't work.
0: Talking with Hannah Cubbins, executive director of OTSI, Ohioans to Stop Executions. Anything else you'd like to add?
9: I don't think so. I I really just appreciate the time and and the conversation.
0: If uh, folks would like more information about your organization, Hannah, how do they find it?
9: Oh, yeah, absolutely. So you can visit www.otsd.org. And if you'd like to know more about the campaign to abolish Ohio's death penalty, you can visit nodeathpenaltyoh.com.
0: Okay, outstanding. Hannah Cubbins, uh, thanks so much for your time today.
9: All right, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.